This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 99th episode of the program. Today is June 16th, and before we get into the issues, I want to take a moment to thank all of these individuals that decided to support us this week, either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week, we have to send shout-outs to Aaron Proventure, Alex Jones, and no, probably not that Alex Jones, Chris Osman, Garrett Kinyard, Gavin Borden, Hannah Engel, Hubert E. McCoskey, Jesus, Linda Sharp, Marcus Briscoe, Mark Bach, Matt Bishop, Nancy Prosser, Neil Spieler, Valerie Face, and V.O. So if you'd also like to support the Humanist Report like these individuals did, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash Humanist Report or find out how to donate to us via PayPal on humanistreport.com. But so long as you watch, that is all I could ever ask or hope for. So on today's episode... First, I'll talk about the People's Summit and why I believe it reinvigorated the progressive movement. I'll also talk about the good news we've received when it comes to the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Flint water crisis, and net neutrality. And additionally, I'll talk about the Democratic Party propagandist, Joanne Reed, and what her latest attack is on Bernie Sanders and his supporters. And I'll also talk about an attack on Bernie supporters from a New York Times article. And also in this episode, I'll be talking about how Bernie Sanders implored Democrats to learn the lesson from Jeremy Corbyn. I'll also talk about how progressives are being blamed for the Virginia shooting. And finally, I'll talk about how Donald Trump is now under investigation for obstruction of justice and how he immediately flip-flopped on yet another issue. So all of these topics will be covered on today's episode. So let's waste no time. Let's go ahead and just jump right in. If you're a progressive in this day and age, it's relatively easy to get discouraged when you have, one, a right-wing extremist party in control of all branches of government, and two, a so-called opposition party that's not offering a truly progressive alternative. So at a time when it's easy for progressives to feel hopeless, There was an event that took place in Chicago, Illinois. So as you all know, I'm talking about the second annual People's Summit, and it was an event that was pretty exciting for progressives. Now, unfortunately for me, I wasn't able to actually attend this event. However, there was a lot of progressive politicians and progressive independent media personalities there that I really just respect and admire. So that in and of itself was exciting. I mean, we're talking about Tim Black, Jordan Sheridan, Jamal Thomas, uh, Nico House, Jimmy Dore, Bernie Sanders, uh, Nina Turner, Tulsi Gabbard. So many people who I admire and respect were there. So this summit kind of gave progressives a reason to be excited, even if you weren't attending it. But what this summit actually accomplished was more than I ever thought was possible. And at a time when progressives are constantly under attack by the political and corporate media establishments, I feel as though this summit actually reinvigorated the movement. And again, I'm saying this as an outsider that didn't actually attend the event. I mean, as someone who's on the West Coast and this event was halfway across the country, the energy was palpable. Like it really felt as though progressives were coming together 
to talk about the future of the progressive movement. And if I were able to share every single clip that I was excited about, we'd be here all day because Nina Turner, Jane Sanders, uh, Bernie Sanders, they all gave phenomenal speeches. But of course, the individual who truly brought down the house was in fact Bernie Sanders. And I couldn't not share parts from his speech that wasn't too long. It was just under an hour, but it was just fantastic. And he really said everything that we needed to hear. So he reminded us that even though the progressive movement is relatively new, we're winning on two really important fronts. So first, Bernie Sanders explained how we're winning on the battlefield of ideas. There is no question that we have won the battle of ideas. And we are continuing to win that battle. And that is, brothers and sisters, no small thing. Because of the grassroots efforts of activists like you throughout this country, we have in recent years made enormous progress in advancing the progressive agenda. And I want all of you, you know, sometimes what we all do is we look at today and we say, well, you know, that's kind of the way it always was. That's not the case. Ideas that just a few years ago seemed radical and unattainable are now today widely supported. And in fact, some of them are being implemented as we speak. I want to repeat what he's saying here. Ideas that just a few years ago seemed radical and unattainable are now today widely supported. And in fact, some of them are being implement implemented as we speak. So that's a really important point to make because a few years ago, the thought of a single-payer healthcare system was honestly unfathomable. And when you had the former standard bearer for the Democratic Party, Talking about it in terms of something that it could never be accomplished, it was really discouraging. I mean, this is how Hillary Clinton talked about single-payer. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. That, to me, was one of the main reasons why I couldn't support Hillary Clinton, and I didn't want her to be the standard bearer of the Democratic Party, because that type of rhetoric, that... That notion that we can't get this done, so we shouldn't even try, that was unacceptable to me. However, unfortunately, there were a lot of people within the Democratic Party that even though they supported single-payer, they agreed with that sentiment. However, since Bernie Sanders joined the presidential race in 2015, think about all that we accomplished. So just between the time period of March of 2016 and January of 2017, there's been an eight-point swing in favor of single-payer among Democrats and a 13-point swing in favor of single-payer among Republicans, according to Pew Research. That is 
huge. Now, additionally, an economist and YouGov poll found that 75% of Democrats, 58% of independents, and 46% of Republicans support single-payer. You heard that correctly. More Republicans now support single-payer than oppose it. And on top of that, there's now 112 co-sponsors to H.R. 676, which, as you all know, is the House bill that would expand Medicare to everyone. And also, recently, states such as California and New York voted to advance single-payer in those states. So within just the span of two years, this is what we accomplished. Single payer is one issue that is no longer radical. It's no longer viewed as something that's unattainable. In fact, there are some people even on the right that don't just view single payer as something that is likely to happen, but they view it as something that's inevitable. I think historically speaking, we're at the midpoint. We had seven years of Obamacare, a change in expectations, and I would predict that in less than seven years we'll be in a single-payer system. Look at the terms of the debate. Republicans are not arguing the free market anymore. They have sort of accepted the fact that the electorate sees health care as not just any commodity. It's not like purchasing a steak or a car. It's something that people now have a sense the government ought to guarantee. That's a right. Right. And because of that, the whole, even Republicans are trying to say, oh, we're not going to lose that many. Oh, yes, you'll be covered on uh, if you have a pre-existing condition. The terms of debate are entirely on the grounds of the liberal argument that everybody ought to so, have. So how do we get Once to- that happens, you're going to end up with a single payer. Well, I was going to say. That was a Fox News host pointing out how the terms of the debate with respect to health care have completely shifted. We are now in control of dialogue when it comes to healthcare. Progressives did that. So we are, in fact, winning on the battlefield of ideas. And I don't need to remind you that that's just one issue. There are many issues where we're actually winning. But Bernie Sanders reminded us that it's not just the battlefield of ideas where progressives are winning because we're actually winning seats across the country. Not only are we winning the battle of ideas, On almost every major issue facing this country, the vast majority of the American people are on our side. But not only are we winning the battle of ideas, we are seeing more and more progressives becoming involved in the political process, running for office and winning office. Jackson, Mississippi. Let me repeat that in case you didn't get it right. Jackson, Mississippi has a new mayor, Mayor Lumumba. Philadelphia has a new district attorney. Larry Krasner, Christine Pellegrino, where is Christine? Okay, hi Christine. Christine won a landslide victory for the New York State Assembly in a, in a district that had overwhelmingly gone for Donald Trump. <laughs> Iowa has a new progressive in their house, Monica Kurth. In South Fulton, Georgia, City Council has a new member, Khalid Kamau. 
Andrea Jenkins, Minneapolis City Council. Jillia Pesenda, Minneapolis City Council, two members. John Courage, San Antonio City Council. Stephanie Hansen, Delaware State Senate. Valdez Bravo, Portland, Oregon. Rita Moore, Oregon School Board. Natalie Val, St. Louis Board of Education. Lori Kilpatrick, Dallas School Board. And brothers and sisters, those are just a few. What we showed is that even in these very, very red states, strong progressives could do far, far better than anyone imagined, and that with proper organization and financial resources, we can win in any district in the United States of America. So again, Bernie Sanders made a really strong point. He states how we learned that strong progressives could do far, far better than anyone had imagined. And even though people may diminish these wins because they're, you know, in city council positions and whatnot, these are not insignificant. These are really important because Bernie Kratz progressives are winning in very red districts that did go to Donald Trump. However, progressives never get the credit that they're owed because people argue that Rob Quist and James Thompson lost and they're Berniecrats, they're progressives. But what Bernie Sanders made clear is, quote, with proper organization and financial resources, we can win in any district. So if the DNC actually put as much effort into getting Rob Quist or James Thompson elected as they did into getting a centrist like John Ossoff elected, Imagine how much success progressives would have across the country. The fact that progressives already had this much success with little to no support from national and state party organizations, it speaks to how powerful our movement actually is. And again, we're handicapped because we're not taking corporate money. And we're being ignored by the DNC and the DCCC. So to say that Rob Quist and James Thompson are examples of how progressives fail you are missing the point. Progressives are having victories in areas that were unthinkable a couple of years ago, and that's something that I think is monumentally important. But what Bernie is saying here is kind of speaks to the Democratic Party's betrayals and incompetence and their numerous failures, and certainly Bernie Sanders had some choice words for the Democratic Party that I think are really important. Trump didn't win the election. The Democratic Party lost the election. The current model and the current strategy of the Democratic Party is an absolute failure. This, this, is not, this is not my opinion. This is the facts. You know, we focus a lot on the presidential election, but we also have to understand that Democrats have lost the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate. Republicans now control almost two-thirds of the governor's chairs throughout this country. And over the last nine years, Democrats have lost almost 1,000 legislative seats in states all across this country. Today, today in almost half of the states in America, Democratic Party has almost no political presence at all. Now, if that's not a failure, if that's not a failed model, 
I don't know what a failed model is. The Democratic Party, Democratic Party needs fundamental change. Fundamental change. What it needs is to open up its doors to working people and young people and all people who are prepared to fight for social and economic justice. The Democratic Party must finally understand which side it is on. And that cannot be the side of Wall Street or the fossil fuel industry or the drug companies. Trump didn't win the election. Democrats lost the election. This is such an important point because every single election is the Democratic Party's election to lose because when it comes to public opinion polling, just looking at policy issues, Republicans are not popular. Their agenda is not popular. Their current health care proposal has a 17% approval rating. So if Democrats lose, that's because of their own incompetence. So anytime Democrats lose an election, it's because they failed to energize the base. They failed to get their message out there, and they've been failing consistently over the course of the last eight years. So the problem, however, is that we're still having a debate about whether or not the Democratic Party should open up the primaries. Of course, the answer is yes, if you want to win. So the Democratic Party, they are a failure, but progressives aren't subscribing to Democratic Party orthodoxy any longer. And when you look at Democratic candidates like Ben Frank or Stephen Jaffe, Cori Bush, Paula Swearingen, they're not taking corporate money and they're running with truly progressive platforms. So a thing that's important for us to remember is that even though the Democratic Party is failing, Progressives are infiltrating the party slowly but surely. But Bernie Sanders didn't just criticize the Democratic Party. He actually went after Trump in a way that I think is very effective. He focused exclusively on the policy betrayals and how he promised the working class one thing, but flipped immediately when he was elected. Today in the White House, we have perhaps the worst and most dangerous president in the history of our country. And we also have, not to be forgotten, extreme right-wing leadership in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Now, what I find particularly disgraceful about Trump is not just his reactionary economic, environmental, and social policies, or the fact that he lies all the time. What I find beyond belief is his incredible hypocrisy. This is a man who ran for president telling the people of this country that he was going to stand up for the working class, that he was going to stand up to the political and economic establishment. And then, then, once he got elected, and without a second's hesitation, he brings more billionaires into his administration than any president in history. And he hires the former president of Goldman Sachs to be his chief economic advisor. 
And then, then four months in his, within his administration, he pushes some of the most destructive pieces of legislation in the modern history of our country, legislation that will cause intense suffering and pain for millions of working class families. Mr. Trump, do not tell us that you are a friend of the working class when you propose to throw 23 million Americans off of health care. Don't tell us that you care about working families when you want to cut Medicaid by over $800 billion, when you want to raise premiums for older workers in a very dramatic way, and when you tell, Mr. Trump, two and a half million women in this country that they no longer have the option of getting their health care at Planned Parenthood. President Trump, spare us the lies and the hypocrisy. Don't tell us that you are a friend of working families when you propose devastating cuts to Head Start, child care, public education, when you make it harder for working class kids to get a college education because of massive cuts in the Pell Grant program. Don't tell us that you support workers when you propose massive cuts in nutrition programs, including the WIC program designed for low-income pregnant women and their newborn babies. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the exact same time and within the exact same legislation, as Trump makes massive cuts to life and death programs, for millions and millions of children, working people, the elderly, the sick and the poor, at the same exact time, he proposes a budget that over a 10-year period would provide $3 trillion in tax breaks to the top 1%. Trump's budget is the most massive transfer of wealth from working people to the billionaire class that we have ever seen in this country. If you can believe it, he wants to repeal the estate tax, which applies only to the top two-tenths of one percent. And that means that while children will go hungry, people will die because they don't have access to health care. The Walton family, a family worth $130 billion, could get up to a $52 billion tax break. What kind of morality is that? When you take from the most vulnerable people in this country, to give to the very, very richest. And Mr. Trump, we say to you tonight, you are not going to get away with that absurd set of priorities. So to me, 
That is the most effective way you can hold Donald Trump accountable, by focusing on the numerous areas in which he just betrays the working class. He promised us one thing, and he's now doing something entirely different. And I think that's unforgivable. So I think that if you really focus on this, you focus on the policy exclusively, you have a powerful argument against Donald Trump. So I wish Democrats would actually internalize what Bernie Sanders is saying and doing and allow him to be the example of the party. But again, they don't want to do that. We've seen how they've ignored people like Rob Quist and James Thompson because they would rather lose than go with a true progressive. So what Bernie Sanders said here, his speech was something that progressives needed to hear. I needed to hear this. We all needed to hear this because we really are, progressives really are making progress. And even though currently we're in the trenches and we're battling for single payer and net neutrality, we're making progress. And we are winning on the battlefield of ideas. We're winning seats. And we have the winning argument. We have what it takes to actually defeat Donald Trump because we know how to criticize Donald Trump. We don't focus on the scandals. We focus on the policy betrayals. Now, that's why I say, you know, after listening to Bernie Sanders speak, this event really reinvigorated the progressive movement. And I think that most people would agree with me. Uh, so I, I'm just so thankful that this event took place. And I certainly am going to make an effort to get to the third annual People's Summit because, again, wow, I, I mean, as someone who's in Oregon, I, I felt the energy, you know, watching the energy of the speakers at this event of Nina Turner. I mean, it was phenomenal. So I'm very thankful that this event took place. And I'm really glad that Bernie Sanders made this speech because he he told us everything that we needed to hear. Now, I want to leave you with one last clip from Bernie Sanders about why we shouldn't be discouraged. Because what he says here, after I've been admittedly feeling burnt out for the past couple of months, he really put things in perspective. And I think that that's, that's really important. Now is not the time to throw your hands up and say, I'm giving up. I'm in despair. I'm burnt out. I want you to think about the incredibly brave heroes and heroines in our history against unbelievably daunting odds who risk their lives for social justice, for economic justice, for racial justice. Now, the fight that we are engaged in now it's a tough one, no question about it. We are taking on an extremely powerful billionaire class whose greed has destroyed the middle class of this country, whose greed says that it is not enough that the top 1% today owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%. Not enough. They want it all. And what we are saying today, we are going to stand up to that greed, to that recklessness, and tell the billionaire class that this nation belongs to all of us. This democracy belongs to all of us. And when we stand together, when we stand together and not allow demagogues to divide us up by the color of our skin or the country 
we came from, or our sexual orientation, or our gender. When we stand together, there is nothing that will stop us. Thank you all very much. MSNBC's Joanne Reed is the quintessential Democratic Party apologist because they're on her team. So anything that they do, by definition, is good because that's part of her team. And if you're not on her team, if you're not on Team Democrat, if you're not a registered Democrat, then anything you do, by definition, is illegitimate because you're not part of her team. So, for example, even though Bernie Sanders is liberal... Uh, and he's more in line with FDR Democrats and where the core of the party actually is, she doesn't believe that Bernie Sanders should be the leader of the Democratic Party because, quote, he's not a Democrat. What do you make of the argument by a lot of Clinton supporters who say, wait, Bernie Sanders supporters aren't Democrats. We need to take care of Democrats first. They have to find an identity, and they've got to find somebody to rally behind, and I think Costa's right. Is it Bernie Sanders, or is it a new face that we haven't yet seen? And I don't think it can be Bernie Sanders, because as we all know, he's not a Democrat. He's not a Democrat. You are really dumb, for real. So that's always been an interesting argument to me, because Bernie Sanders, he's a liberal. He is an FDR Democrat. The majority of the country, the majority of the party agrees with Bernie Sanders' policy position. So if you actually disagree with Bernie Sanders, you're just not a liberal. So what Joanne Reed does in order to delegitimize him because she's a propagandist for the Democratic Party, she chooses to dismiss his arguments simply because he's not a registered Democrat like her. It's an intellectually lazy, albeit effective way to shut down debate. So if you don't want to debate someone on the merits of their argument, you just simply say, well, you know, he's not a Democrat, so I don't want to hear anything that he has to say. Day. Now, she's doing exactly what she's supposed to do because MSNBC, of course, they are the propaganda wing of the Democratic Party establishment. So she's obviously carrying water for the establishment because that's what she gets paid to do. However, the problem with her argument is that it's inherently anti-democratic because only 30% of the country is comprised of registered Democrats. And that percentage is actually probably much lower after the 2016 Dem exit. So to claim that left-leaning independents shouldn't have any say over the party organization whatsoever, to say that they shouldn't have a say in a party that fields candidates that ultimately go on to represent all of the country is just unacceptable. It's antithetical to democracy, and really what she's talking about here is excluding left-leaning independents from the Democratic Party. And that's an odd argument to make for someone who purports to be against voter suppression. So on November 25th, she actually tweeted out a video about a discussion pertaining to voter suppression specifically, and about how it actually warranted an investigation. And as recently as May, she stated, automatic voter registration at age 18 would be the single most powerful anti-vote suppression tool, particularly if it was national. So with respect to this issue specifically, Joy and I are in vigorous agreement because I absolutely agree that voter suppression is a problem. So if she's against voter suppression, then presumably she is willing to speak out against all forms of voter suppression, right? 
Actually, that's not really the case. So she argued, I've now lived and voted in two closed primary states, Florida and New York. There's nothing preventing people from changing parties and voting. Voter suppression is insidious and very real. Let's please stop disrespecting its victims by likening it to a failure to register on time. So on one hand, Joanne Reed hates voter suppression and rightfully calls out the Republican Party when they try to discourage people from voting by implementing arbitrary voter ID laws. However, if the Democratic Party engages in voter suppression with closed primaries, which that is a form of voter suppression, then she's A-OK with it. Now, if you're wondering how she can hold this contradictory position when she claims to be against voter suppression, well, you have to remember that she's on Team Democrat. So anything that they do is A-OK. Now, what I find interesting about this argument is that if you change a few words around, you'll see how she's doing mental gymnastics to justify her party's voter suppression tactics. It's just unbelievable. So if you replace the words changing parties with a couple of other words, this is how it sounds. I've now lived and voted in two voter ID states. Florida and New York. There's nothing preventing people from obtaining a voter ID and voting. Now, that sounds absurd, because it is. Voter suppression is voter suppression. If you implement policies that discourage people from voting, that make it more difficult for people to vote, if you make it so that way people have to jump through more hoops to vote, what do you call that? Well, according to Joanne Reed, definitely not voter suppression. So at the People's Summit, TYT's Nomiki Konst made a point that closed primaries is in fact a form of voter suppression and racism with young and independent voters. But someone named Alex Leo said that such an assertion is tantamount to, quote, whitesplaining at its best, to which Joy Ann Reed retweeted that statement, saying, this demand that people outside a party get to choose that party's nominees is always amazing to me. So, these hypocritical pseudo-liberals are willing to call out Republican forms of voter suppression, and rightfully so, but when it comes to the Democratic Party's voter suppression, they're not just silent on it, they're actually speaking out in favor of voter suppression that the Democratic Party does. And what they're doing is they're not even engaging in the discussion. They're just saying, oh, you're you're white? Well, you know, you can't make this point if you're white. You're white-splaining. Again, it's another way to easily shut down the debate. It's akin to saying, well, you're not a Democrat, so you have no say in our party's politics. But, the, you know, they're saying now, oh, you're white-splaining? Well, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to discuss the merits of your argument because you're white. And therefore, because of who you are, because of your descriptive identity, your position is illegitimate and we should disregard any and everything you have to say. Well, again, it's a really easy and sleazy way to shut down the debate. And I think I want to try that. So looking at Alex's Twitter here, she says that Bernie's ideological purity test seems randomly applied. He should define the criteria. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, Whitey, but I'm going to have to disagree with you here because it seems like what you're doing is white-splaining to me. I think there may be some way for me to work in straight-splaining too, I guess. So, uh, you know, we'll see. Unless Alex is a lesbian, of course. But if she's heterosexual, then I can dismiss her argument because I'm gay. 
<laughs> so, so you know, maybe we could work that in as well. But out of all the splainings, I mean, they're all stupid, but the most egregious form of splaining that I think exists is rich splaining. So getting back to Joanne Reed's justification for her party's voter suppression tactics, she found it amazing that people outside the party want to have a say in choosing the next president. And she then went on to rich splain voter suppression to us progressives. So she states, it's like saying, I'm not going to be your roommate, but I demand the right to help you choose an apartment since I might visit one day. In fact, not only do I not want to be your roommate, I intend to trash whatever apartment you pick when I visit, but let me pick the place. Am I going to chip in on the rent? Nah, that's your problem. Utilities? Food? How dare you patronize me with your establishment corporatism? I have no intention of participating in any way in the maintenance of your apartment, but how dare you exclude me from the choice? Parties are like apartments. You chip in or you're like a visitor. Feel free to bring wine when you do drop by, but don't tell me how to decorate. Bernie and his followers are like that college friend who stays at your place for weeks, pays zero dollars, eats your food, and trashes your aesthetic. That sounds kind of... Dum, 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 dum. For real. Okay, so according to Joanne Reed, democracy is like an apartment. Okay, I think I get it now. <laughs> Makes total sense, Joanne. Also, um, she's not just implying that we should be excluded from democracy, but she's implying that Bernie Sanders supporters and progressives are toxic overall. Because she said it's like we trashed the apartment and we're moochers and only take from the Democratic Party and we never give them anything back in return. That is, if you want to be unreasonable and exclude votes as a form of currency in a democracy, but I mean, who am I kidding? This is Joanne Reed. She has an agenda and it doesn't matter how irrational that agenda is, she's willing to push her party's agenda. But she's implying here that we're bad for the party, apparently, which is why voter suppression is justified if it's being done against us. So, obviously, it's a really hypocritical argument for someone who purports to be against voter suppression. However, I don't actually want to engage in the merits of her argument because I know what to do now. Because what Joanne Reed is telling me here, it just sounds like rich-splaining to me at its very best. So, I think I want to let her know how I feel about her rich-splaining. Now, I'm not talking about Joanne Reed because I hate her. In fact, if you look at policies, we probably agree on most policy positions, but I'm talking about her because it's really important. As someone with a very large platform who's in a powerful position, I find it problematic that she's willing to shamelessly defend one form of voter suppression while simultaneously being against another. So she's part of the media, and as someone in the media, she's supposed to speak truth to power and hold parties and government accountable if they're engaging in arbitrary acts such as voter suppression. But she's now using her platform to constantly berate progressives and talk down to people that are fighting against injustice perpetuated by the political establishment that serves no one but their donors. And what I want to do now is share a quote from James Baldwin that perfectly explains why it's important for us to call out these powerful media figures. The quote is, Ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. And that's exactly why I find it important to call out Joanne Reed. Now, I would tell you to share that quote with Joy, but ironically, she actually has it posted as her Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> So what Joanne Reed needs to do is actually read the quote that's in her Twitter bio and really think about it. Because what she's doing from her position of power is she's looking down on us peasants from her pedestal 
And she's berating and lambasting people who are fighting this fight right now because progressives have had children die because they couldn't provide proof that they had health insurance. She's lambasting people that are so plagued with student debt that we may never be able to purchase a house or a car, unlike her generation. She's choosing to belittle a movement and call them lazy when, contrary to what she implied in her idiotic tweet, we worked our asses off phone banking for Bernie and canvassing for Bernie, not because there's this cult of personality surrounding him, but because he's the one politician in the country that's actually listening to us. But yet, Joanne Reed has the audacity to look down upon us from her pedestal and wag her finger at us and call us lazy and imply that we're toxic. That's not the case. You're in a position of power. You're supposed to speak truth to power. And you choose to use your platform to diminish people who are disadvantaged, not just economically, but socially. And we are trying to reform a party that wants to exclude us. And you are now justifying their reason to exclude us. But when it comes to other forms of exclusion and voter suppression, you're against that. So, so long as the Democratic Party does something, Joanne Reed is always going to be okay with it. You are the definition of what I'd like to call a partisan hack, and you should be completely ashamed of yourself, Joy. The fight to save net neutrality just got its biggest and perhaps most important ally yet. Pornhub, which, as you all know, is probably the most popular pornographic website in the universe. So they're a really important ally because they get 75 million visitors per day. So if they speak out in favor of net neutrality and why we need to protect net neutrality, then that could have a profound impact on the battle to save the internet. Now, as you all know, July 12th is the internet-wide day of action to protest the FCC's decision to roll back net neutrality regulations, and multiple large companies have pledged to participate, now including Pornhub. So Pornhub announced today that on July 12th, the adult entertainment website plans to join a protest organized by Fight for the Future, Free Press, and Demand Progress against the latest threat to a free and open internet. The protest day of action lands five days before the first deadline for comments on the FCC's proposal to roll back net neutrality protections. If net neutrality hadn't existed 10 years ago, Pornhub's fate would have been in the hands of cable and wireless companies, Corey Price, vice president at Pornhub, told me over email. Without it, the cable and wireless companies that control internet access will have unfair power to pick winners and losers in the market. Companies like Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T would be free to enact their own slow lanes and force people to pay more for certain sites. Pornhub joins one of more than 60 companies participating in the protest, including Amazon, Jithub, Kickstarter, Reddit, and Imager. The day of action will be similar to the SOPA blackout protest in 2012 or the slowdown day in 2014 with messaging or interference that urges visitors to these websites to take action. Pornhub's among the top 20 most visited sites in the United States. Amazon.com and Reddit are both in the top five. And according to Pornhub's own reporting, the site draws 75 million visitors per day, plenty of eyes that otherwise might not be aware of the net neutrality battle. 
Price said that Pornhub hasn't settled on specifics of the protest messaging, but is considering incorporating a loading icon to emphasize how it could make some sites much slower. Start practicing calming breaths for when you have to hold your patience on protest day. Quote, no one in the porn industry ever yells slower, 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 he said. We're much more accustomed to faster, faster, faster. Here at Pornhub, we want to keep it that way. Okay, that last line there, I mean... That was just, that was a brilliant pun. So I expressed disappointment a couple of weeks ago when I told you how Netflix CEO Reed Hastings announced that he would basically be backing down from the net neutrality fight. However, Pornhub is perhaps the biggest ally we could ever hope or ask for because again, 75 million visitors and if they slow down videos on July 12th, it could get people to pay attention to what's at stake and what could potentially happen if Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T do in fact get their way. However, guess who decided to join the fight after all? Netflix had a change of heart. So they tweeted out a link to the July 12th day of action saying they will never outgrow the fight for net neutrality. Everyone deserves an open internet. And the link shows that they've now joined Fight for the Future's day of action on July 12th. So this news is amazing. This is great news. This is exactly what we could have hoped and wished for. Um, and I received an email from Joss from uh, Fight for the Future because I will also be participating uh, in any way that I can in the uh, day of action saying that this is really going to be big. There's a lot more companies that have jumped on board and we have now, I mean, the biggest websites on the internet, Amazon, Reddit, Pornhub, Netflix, all coming together to denounce the FCC's decision to kill net neutrality and ruin the internet. And to me, I find it so inspiring because this is what happened last time. This is what we saw. This is the level of resistance and activism we saw when we successfully stopped the FCC's agenda to kill net neutrality. And this is exactly what we needed. So I, I just couldn't be happier about the news regarding this. And I certainly am looking forward to the day of action. I really hope that everyone also will be inclined to participate because we are at a fight for democracy. It's not just about the internet because if Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T are the gatekeepers and can choose to slow down websites over other websites and pick winners and losers, democracy is threatened. They can control information. They can not just kill off competition. That's certainly problematic, but I mean, they can stifle democracy. They can stifle dissenting opinions. They could shut down websites that are challenging their business model that not just in terms of you know competition but also who speak out against the corrupt policies and anti-consumer policies that comcast and verizon verizon constantly push so um this is great news Members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and other water protectors have been doing everything in their power to stop the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline because it poses a threat to the water supply of millions of residents across four states. And also, it violates the sovereignty of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And in trying to fight this pipeline, the protesters at Standing Rock were literally treated like terrorists by armed mercenaries and they've even endured state-sanctioned violence and were harassed and arbitrarily arrested by militarized police. But now, after putting up with all of that, there's a small glimmer of hope. 
So The Hill reports a federal judge ruled Wednesday that the environmental review for the Dakota Access Pipeline was in part inadequate and must be reconsidered, handing tribal opponents of the 1,170-mile pipeline project a key legal victory. But U.S. District Court Judge James Bosberg did not order pipeline operators to stop the oil that is already flowing through the project, saying he would need to consider that request in light of Wednesday's judgment. Bosberg ruled that the federal government substantially complied with the federal governmental permitting law that governs projects such as the Dakota Access, a 1,170-mile, 1, 3.8 pipeline that can carry up to 570,000 barrels of oil per day. But Bosberg wrote in a 91-page opinion, the Army Corps of Engineers did not adequately consider the impacts of an oil spill on fishing rights, hunting rights, or environmental justice, or the degree to which the pipeline's effects are likely to be highly controversial. He ruled that the Army Corps, which permitted the project, would need to conduct a new review of Dakota Access that considers those factors. But Bosberg did not order Dakota Access to cease operations, which have been underway since June 1st. He said that is a separate question that he will consider in the future. Bosberg ruled that part of the original permitting decision that cleared the way for the pipeline was inadequate, as the tribes had insisted. Standing Rock Sioux Chairman Dave Archibald hailed the decision as a major victory in a statement Wednesday. We applaud the courts for protecting our laws and regulations from undue political influence and will ask the court to shut down pipeline operations immediately, he said. To be clear here, this doesn't immediately cease construction of the pipeline, although that's something that the judge will consider. However, for now, this is excellent news. So there's going to have to be further um, evaluation in terms of, you know, the impact this has on uh, tribal and hunting rights. So this is a really great thing to hear when the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, they've had nothing but bad news consistently for the last couple of months. And certainly, you know, we have to be cautiously optimistic because, again, this doesn't imply that this will lead to halting of the construction of the pipeline. But nonetheless, it does It does give us a sign that it is possible that it may be halted. And even if it is halted, it may be temporary. But it shows that we do have power. You know, we are powerful in numbers, and when we come together to fight something, we can be at least moderately successful. We can make our voices known. So this is just such a great thing to hear, especially considering everything that the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe put up with. So I, I really hope that the judge does find that this this pipeline does need to be ceased, uh, because that's what needs to happen. We're putting the profits of an oil company which buys off politicians in North Dakota above the interests of residents of North Dakota, of the Standing Rock tribe who just want clean drinking water. That's not something that's unreasonable. Water is life. It, should, it shouldn't even be a question. So this is just such great news. The nearly 100,000 residents of Flint, Michigan have put up with an ongoing lead contamination crisis in their water supply now for multiple years and they cried out and Flint officials looked the other way until the story finally garnered national attention. Now, up until this point, there's been no accountability for the negligence of Flint officials. However, we recently learned that there might actually be justice for Flint. So, according to Michigan Live, Michigan Attorney General Bill Schwete has charged five water officials, including a member of Governor Rick Schneider's cabinet and a former emergency manager with manslaughter, related to their alleged failure to act 
in during the Flint water crisis. Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Director Nick Lyon, former Flint Emergency Manager Darnell Early, former City of Flint Water Department Manager Howard Croft, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality's Drinking Water Chief Leanne Schechter-Smith, and former District Supervisor Stephen Bush will all face involuntary manslaughter charges related to their alleged failure to act in the Flint water crisis, Schwete announced in a release on Wednesday, June 14th. Involuntary manslaughter is a felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison and or a $7,500 fine. The manslaughter charges are connected to the death of Robert Skidmore, who died December 13, 2015, due to the area's Legionnaire's disease outbreak. Charges against Lyon were authorized early on Wednesday, June 14th, by Genesee District Judge David Gwynn. Early, Croft, Bush, and Schechter Smith have all previously been charged in connection to the water crisis. So there's no question about this to me. This is absolutely the right move. And this isn't about vengeance. This is about justice. And if there's no accountability for negligent public officials, then... This may happen again, and we have to make an example out of these public officials. We have to charge them and prosecute them because we need to send a message to public officials throughout the country that if you have residents who are dealing with a lead contamination crisis in their water supply, you cannot look away. That's negligent. And when you also see lead contamination crisis and water pollution occurring throughout the country, not just in Flint, but in other cities then we have to make sure that there's accountability now more than ever because water is life. And this isn't something that we should have to fight for in a first world country. I mean, I don't want anyone to be fighting for water. Everyone should just have access to clean drinking water. I think it's a human right. But I mean, in, in the United States, the richest economic and military power, how can we allow residents to have a water contamination crisis and not just have universal outrage. I mean, surely the government has had, you know, they've expressed outrage once this became a national story, but the response has been tepid and the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, nationally speaking, they've kind of turned the blind eye and played politics with the lives of the residents of Flint. And that's not acceptable. So the fact that there may actually be accountability now is exactly what is needed. You cannot ignore the cries of residents who have lead in their water and expect to get away with it. I mean, if you're a public official and you don't want to represent these people, then just step down, get out of office. You're the one who decided to run and apply for the job that you're currently in. So if you're not going to represent the people who are your constituents and you're actually going to allow them to be poisoned... You have no place in government, and certainly you belong in uh, either jail or you should be prosecuted and be fined because that's just not acceptable. So I think that this is a move that will hopefully help the situation. I mean, it, it, we want justice, but again, this isn't going to erase the pain that was caused by this water contamination crisis. It won't. It won't go away. The lives of the people of Flint are still going to be affected because, again, this is an ongoing process, even though they now have money from the EPA to change their water pipes and replace them with non-contaminated drinking water pipes. That doesn't happen overnight. It's an ongoing process. So this is the right move, and I'm ecstatic that we may actually have some accountability once and for all. It's rare in America, but when it happens, I mean, we have to rejoice. So as you all know, there was the Virginia shooting that took place a couple of days ago, 
And I never really like to talk about these types of tragedies, be it terror attacks, murders, murder investigations, stabbings, anything of that nature, because I don't really feel as though I can offer insight or commentary that's unique. I mean, I feel the same way about these incidents as everyone else. It's it's egregious. It's disgusting. Uh, and, and it makes me sick to my stomach as a humanist thinking about how people are willing to inflict so much suffering on other human beings who they should be empathetic towards. So I hate talking about these kinds of things. I mean, the Manchester attack, for example, that was heartbreaking to me specifically because I have nieces the same age as the girls who were targeted, who listened to Ariana Grande. And when it comes to the white nationalist terror attack in Portland, I feel so offended and just angry that this incident occurred in my city. And this just hit a little bit too close to home. So I, I just, I hate talking about these kinds of events, you know, and I... I have nothing unique to offer. It's disgusting. It's deplorable. But I wanted to talk about the Virginia shooting because <laughs> this is this is really frustrating to me. So political opportunists on the left and the right took the time to basically implicate Bernie Sanders and his supporters and blame us, saying that it's our rhetoric that caused this to occur because the individual who carried out the shooting was a Bernie Sanders volunteer. Now, before we go any further, let me just say that I unequivocally condemn this attack in any and all forms of violence in no uncertain terms. Uh, and Bernie Sanders also quickly came out to denounce this attack. And I wish Steve Scalise and anyone else that was involved and harmed in the shooting a speedy recovery, not just with the physical harm that was inflicted, but the psychological damage that they're going to have to live with for the rest of their lives. And I'm not just saying this now because it's convenient. I've consistently taken the position that is against violence. So for example, last year I spoke out against violence against Trump supporters. Nobody ever has the right to do violence against another human being, ever. I don't care what they said to you. Get over it. People can say mean things. They can say what they want. But you never, ever have the right to do violence. You can protest First Amendment rights. You can be there all day and protest. You can scream as loud as you want. But the minute you actually use violence, you lose. And when it comes to violence against progressives protesting at Trump rallies, I've spoken out against that as well. Now, I don't agree with them uh, going and disrupting uh, Trump's rallies and doing violence, but they do have a right to protest. It's called the First Amendment. You have your First Amendment right to assemble, but they also have their First Amendment right to do a counter-protest to a Trump rally. You don't have the right to assault them. And when Donald Trump suggested that champions of the Second Amendment might be able to do something about Hillary Clinton, suggesting that, you know, assassination might be an option if she won, I spoke out against that as well. If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. Now, the reason why I'm showing you what I said is because I do think that rhetoric matters. I think that violent rhetoric has dangerous consequences, and I think that we do need to be mindful of the things that we say, because certainly, especially if you have a large platform like I do with 100,000 subscribers, you don't want to condone violence or ever do anything that might encourage your viewers to lash out in a violent way. And I've always been on the side of nonviolent political resistance. I mean, to me, my voice is my weapon. I don't want 
anything to do with any type of violent resistance because I don't think it's as effective as nonviolent resistance. I'm against it for both pragmatic and moral reasons. And the individual who I admire the most in American politics, Bernie Sanders, wasted no time condemning this horrific incident. The alleged shooter at the Republican baseball practice this morning is someone who apparently volunteered on my presidential campaign. I am sickened by this despicable act, and let me be as clear as I can be. Violence of any kind is unacceptable in our society, and I condemn this action in the strongest possible terms. Real change can only come about through nonviolent action, and anything else runs counter to our most deeply held American values. I know I speak for the entire country in saying that my hopes and prayers are that Representative Scalise, congressional staff, and the Capitol Police officers who were wounded make a quick and full recovery. I also want to thank the Capitol Police for their heroic actions to prevent further harm. Thank you, Madam President. Now, in spite of that video, in spite of Bernie Sanders' condemnation of the violence, in spite of my repeated condemnation of the violence, and in spite of the fact that 99.9% .9 of Bernie Sanders supporters are tree-hugging hippie pacifists, myself included, we were still blamed for this nonetheless because the shooter was a Bernie Sanders volunteer at one point in time. Case in point. How many innocent people have to die before we realize that words do matter? Crazy people act on the crazy things they hear from politicians and celebrities. Think before you utter those blind, hateful words next time, liberals, because there are crazy people out there taking your metaphors literally. So to me, I find it ironic that Fox News is suddenly so concerned with divisive and violent rhetoric, considering the fact that they continuously try to demonize all Muslims as terrorists. Uh, they demonize transgender people as bathroom predators. They say that gay people are pedophiles or suggest that that's the case. So they take certain groups that are already disadvantaged advantaged socially and economically more so than the rest of the population and they go to extra lengths to demonize those people but now all of a sudden that a republican was targeted and republicans were targeted they're concerned with divisive rhetoric so my question is where were you when there's all these right-wing terror attacks Fox News and Republicans, they're silent on that, or they take more time to speak out, but if it's someone on the left that resorts to violence, they have something to say almost immediately. But the problem is that it's not just right-wingers, it's not just Fox News who are trying to use this opportunity to demonize Bernie Sanders and his supporters, because people on the so-called left are doing it as well. MSNBC's Joanne Reed also wasted no time implicating Bernie Sanders by retweeting a tweet that states, too soon to mention Bernie O's his entire political career to the NRA, particularly his support of assault rifles, his Republican opponent decried. And then Joanne Reed goes on to state, I hope we have the maturity as a country to confront facts like this at the same time we're thinking of the victims and keeping level heads. Yes, because you know Bernie, he's just this gigantic gun nut who owes his entire career to the NRA who gave him a D- rating. So, I mean, think of the implication here. She's saying that because Bernie Sanders is allegedly a gun nut who owes his career to the NRA, he's somehow culpable in this violence. He, he somehow encouraged 
this form of violence, even though Bernie Sanders throughout his career has consistently spoken out in favor of nonviolent forms of resistance. I mean, he literally led civil rights sit-ins to desegregate the University of Chicago. Uh, no mention of violence, no use of guns there. It was all peaceful protests, nonviolent protests, but yet... Bernie Sanders, because this, these individuals have an agenda and they want to lie and they want to demonize Bernie Sanders and vilify his supporters, well, they're going to claim that he's a gun nut who owes his career to the NRA. It's just a joke. But I mean, that's not all. So the New York Times published an article titled Attack Test Movement Sanders Founded, where the author argues the most ardent supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders have long been outspoken about their anger toward Republicans and in some cases toward Democrats. Their idol, the senator from Vermont, has called President Trump a demagogue and said recently that he was perhaps the worst and most dangerous president in the history of our country. Now, in Mr. Sanders' world, his fans have something concrete to grapple with. James T. Hodgkinson, a former volunteer for Mr. Sanders' presidential campaign, is suspected of opening fire on Republican lawmakers practicing baseball in Alexandria, Virginia. That shooting on Wednesday, which wounded four people, may prove to be an unexpected test for a movement born out of Mr. Sanders' left-wing populist politics and a moment for liberals to figure out how to balance anger at Mr. Trump with inciting violence. But long before the shooting on Wednesday, some of Mr. Sanders' supporters had earned a belligerent reputation for their criticism of Hillary Clinton, the Democratic Party, and others who they believed disagreed with their ideas. Sanders fans sometimes referred to derogatorily as Bernie Bros or Bernie Bots, at times harassed reporters covering Mr. Sanders, and flooded social media with angry posts directed at the corporate media, a term often used by the senator. So think about what they're implying here. They're implying that because we're angry, because we are channeling our anger to the political establishment, because we rightfully point out the fact that Donald Trump has harmful policies that will lead to more people dying, that we're somehow inciting violence by stating these facts. Unbelievable. I hate to break it to them, but Trump is a fascistic demagogue, and the policies that Republicans push literally lead to people dying. What do you think happens when we send troops to war? People die. What do you think happens when we strip health insurance away from millions of Americans? People will die. If those facts don't anger you, then you're not paying attention. So what we do is we direct our anger towards ways of organizing that will actually impact the country in a positive way. So last week, here's how I instructed my viewers to respond when we learned that Senate Republicans were trying to push their harmful repeal of the Affordable Care Act through the Senate. Here's what I said. And what you can do now is make a difference by calling your senator and letting him or her know that this cannot stand. If they vote for this bill, you will vote against them because that is something. I mean, throwing people off of their health insurance, we shouldn't have to be fighting for things like this. I mean, we already have to deal with complacency when it comes to the Democratic Party, but Republicans actually trying to harm the American people, we shouldn't have to be dealing with it. So let, let your voice be heard. Call them and let them know this cannot stand. How dare I? How violent of me to instruct my viewers to call their senators to tell them to not support this insidious bill. I mean, that's what we're doing. Yes, we're angry, but we're not inciting violence with that anger. We're directing our anger towards elected officials who are supposed to represent us because we want to effect change. And do you want to know what Bernie Sanders does? He directs people to channel their anger into running for Congress. 
That's how we channel our rage. We never incite violence. We never condone violence. And as someone who's a humanist, I'm unequivocally against violence, not just for moral reasons, but because I think it's not a pragmatic means of accomplishing political goals that we have. I don't want America to be destabilized from violence, the type of violence that we see in Tunisia, where violence against politicians in that country, for example, actually prevents democratic consolidation from taking place and actually destabilizes the country and stifles progress. So I don't like violence. Bernie Sanders doesn't like violence, and 99.99% of progressives and Bernie Sanders supporters also do not condone violence. And that's because that's just not the best way to push forward your political agenda, and it's also just morally reprehensible. But in spite of the fact that progressives are on the record and have come out against violence, we've come out to denounce violence at every step of the way on both sides, uh... People within the Democratic Party establishment and the Republican establishment, the entire political and corporate media establishment, they're now ta taking the time to smear us and demonize us and pin blame on us for this shooting because they don't like us. They see that our movement is gaining momentum and they want to demonize us. So I want to share an argument from Sean King because I think he does a great job calling out all of these opportunists on both the left and the right who want to blame Bernie Sanders and his supporters for this incident. So he argues in today's gotcha culture Thousands of statements are now being tweeted blaming Bernie, blaming progressives, blaming the Julius Caesar play, blaming everything and everybody imaginable for the shooting. Just moments ago, I saw some fool online saying Sean King has blood on his hands. All of that is absolutely preposterous. First off, Bernie is as close to a pacifist hippie as we have in the Senate. The man worshipped the ground Dr. King walked on and has been an advocate for nonviolent protest and boycotts his entire life. He has never advocated for violence against Donald Trump, against conservatives, or even suggested that we should consider violence as a worthwhile tactic as we fight against problematic policies. This notion that Bernie of all people had anything to do with Wednesday's violence is foolhardy, unintelligent, and poorly considered. Secondly, the progressive movement in general is a movement about organizing and empowering people for systemic political change. I am part of this movement. I was a volunteer for Bernie's presidential campaign. To this very day, I worked directly with several dozen progressive grassroots organizations fighting for real change in this country. I've attended and hosted and contributed to hundreds of meetings with these organizations. Not once, publicly or privately, did a single person in a single meeting I was part of ever suggest explicitly or implicitly that someone should go do what James Hodgkinson allegedly did today, period. And this shouldn't even have to be said. I shouldn't even have to come out and do a video about this, but nonetheless, the aggregate corporate media and political establishment, they have an agenda. They actually hate Bernie Sanders supporters and progressives, and they really do view us as political threats. And they don't view us as threats because we're violent. They view us as a threat because together, our voices are far more powerful than any weapon could ever be. Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in America, and the reason why he's the most popular politician in America is because he's one of the only politicians actually fighting for single-payer health care, for tuition-free public colleges and universities, raising the minimum wage. He's consistently on the right side of the issues that the American people care about. But nonetheless, even though he is doing things that will benefit our lives, it seems as though the corporate media and political establishment are on a bash Bernie spree as of late. Uh, and it makes no sense to me, but 
that's that's the way it's been um, for a number of reasons. I mean, for one, there is the attempt to pin blame on him for the Virginia shooting. And also, when it comes to elections, they're saying basically that he's getting in the way of Democrats' need to win or desire to win. Uh, and the New York Times decided to chime in. So in an article titled, Democrats in Split Screen, The Base Wants It All, The Party Wants to Win. That's debatable. Well, they first discuss the obvious split within the Democratic Party, saying the growing tension between the party's ascendant militant wing and Democrats competing in conservative-leaning terrain was on vivid split-screen display over the weekend. In Chicago, Senator Bernie Sanders led a revival-style meeting of his progressive devotees, while in Atlanta, Democrats made a final push to seize a traditionally Republican congressional district. It may be essential for Democrats to reconcile the party's two clashing impulses if they are to retake the House of Representatives in 2018. In a promising political environment, a drawn-out struggle over democratic strategy and ideology could spill into primary elections and disrupt the party's path to a majority. Oh, and best believe it will. If the Democratic Party establishment doesn't acquiesce behind progressives, there will be no unity and they will lose yet again. But I want to mention a word here. I want to talk about a word more specifically that they brought up. They brought up the word militant. So they're trying to frame Bernie Sanders supporters as not just aggressive, but literally overtly violent. I mean, if you look up the definition of militant, violence comes up. But they're also creating this narrative that the Democratic Party, you know, they're being pragmatic. They just want to win. But the Democratic Party's base, I mean, the progressive militant wing, for example, they just, they just want certain policy concessions when that conflicts with the Democratic Party's need to win. Except that's bullshit. They've been centrist, and what has that gotten them again? Oh, that's right, completely wiped out at all levels of government. They control nothing. And you're telling us that they know what it takes to win? No, you haven't reached out to the base. You aren't giving the base anything, and you expect us to rest assured that the Democratic Party knows what it takes to win? They don't know what it takes to win. But what they do in this article to prove their point is they use John Ossoff as an example, who, as you all know, he's running for Congress in the 6th District of Georgia. And they continue, Outside Atlanta on Friday, John Ossoff offered a decidedly un-Sanders-like vision of the future in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, a conservative-leaning patchwork of office plazas and upscale malls where voters attended his campaign events wearing golf shirts and designer eyewear. That's a weird thing to say. In a special election that has become the most expensive house race in history, Mr. Ossoff, a 30-year-old former congressional aide, presented himself as essentially anti-ideological. Greeting suburban parents near a playground and giving a pep talk to volunteers, he stressed broadly popular policies like fighting air and water pollution and preserving insurance coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. Bucking the left, Mr. Ossoff said in an interview that he would not support raising income taxes for even the wealthy, and opposed any move toward a single-payer healthcare system. Attacked by Republicans for his ties to national liberals, Mr. Ossoff said he had not yet given an ounce of thought to whether he would vote for Nancy Pelosi, the House Democratic leader, in a future ballot for Speaker. The tension between Mr. Ossoff's message and the appetites of the national Democratic base has not appeared to hinder his bid for Congress. He has raised more than $23 million, an astonishing sum largely in small online donations from Democrats 
Democrats seeking to put a dent in the Democrats' House majority. Several polls over the last weeks showed Mr. Ossoff leading his Republican opponent, Karen Handel, though both parties agree that the race remains a toss-up. Winning over Republican voters remains a critical task, though he started his campaign pledging to make Trump furious. Mr. Ossoff did not bring up the president in his campaign events, and he has called talk of impeachment premature. In Mr. Ossoff's district, there was little evidence that voters yearned for a harder-edged liberal message. At an early vote rally on Friday, Paul Flexner, an educator and Democratic activist in Dunwoody, said Mr. Ossoff had been wise to avoid Sanders-style politics. Anne Easterly, a consultant who attended an Ossoff event in Well-Tended Park, said she hoped Democrats would take a lesson from Georgia about how to channel partisan energy into difficult races. It's our hope to find moderates who can appeal to moderates and Republicans who are not Trumpians just because of the way the districts are drawn now, she said. So make no mistake about it, they're advocating for the Democratic Party to double down on a losing strategy because what did hillary clinton do she ignored progressives and she instead was so confident she thought that she had progressive votes on lock that she then decided to court republicans and what happened how did that turn out for her she lost to a historically disliked buffoon so they're advocating that democrats do the same thing again even though it's a demonstrably Terrible strategy. And furthermore, they literally state here, quote, winning over Republicans remains a critical task. I would beg to differ considering the number one priority is winning over your own fucking base. I mean, why do I even have to come out and say this? If you don't have your base, you cannot win. You don't shun your base. And if you can't even win over your own goddamn base, how do you expect to win over Republicans? This is one of the dumbest articles I think I have ever read because it's just completely tone deaf. It's completely tone deaf. How can you purport that running centrist moderate candidates and trying to court over Republicans is what they need to do when they've been doing that and they've failed? They've been wiped out across the country at all levels of government and you're telling them to do the same exact thing that facilitated these losses? I mean, are we living in the twilight zone? What is wrong with you people? And how many Republicans try to win over Democrats? This is only something that the left is talking about, but Republicans have moved so far to the right that Democrats have also moved to the right to try to compete with them. But you're ignoring the fact that the progressive platform is a populist platform. It's majoritarian, and it's supported by a majority of the country. But they want to make sure that... History repeats itself. So they want the Democratic Party to run more Republican light candidates, which will ensure that they will lose. So let's say if you want to, you know, use John Ossoff as an example, that's fine. But I have some examples for you as well. So there was someone named Alison Lundergren Grimes who was challenging Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. She was basically a Republican. She was a Democrat in name only. And she ran one of the most conservative campaigns a Democrat ran in a while. Guess what happened? She was wiped out. She was so afraid to admit that she was liberal that she wouldn't even uh, admit to the obvious fact that she voted for Obama. And Mitch, that's not how you hold a gun. And Mitch, that's not how you hold a gun. I mean, come on. And then you also have Mark Pryor from Arkansas, who literally ran as a Democratic theocrat, who says that God guides his decisions. Guess what happened to Mark Pryor? He lost. This is my compass, my North Star. It gives me comfort and guidance to do what's best for Arkansas. I'm Mark Pryor, and I approve this message 
because this is who I am and what I believe. Ha! Gay! So if you continue to give your base just a marginally better option than the Republican Party, why would they come out to vote for a Republican light candidate when voting is already a chore? I mean, you have to stand in line for hours. In many cases, you have to take time off of work. Uh, you have to register to vote. It's, an, it's, it's a hassle. So if you are going to actually give voters something to vote for, I think they're willing to put in the time to vote. But if you're presenting them with this illusion of choice where the only option you're providing them is someone who's marginally less shitty than the Republican, they're not going to come out to vote. They're not going to think, oh, I better get out and support that person who's going to screw me over a little bit less than the Republican Party. That's not what happened. That's not what they do. You have to give them a real alternative. I mean, the UK election just happened. If you give voters an alternative that will galvanize the base, it will galvanize young people to come out and vote. But they can't get that through their heads, and it's blowing my mind right now. I don't get it. Millennials now match baby boomers and make up the largest generation in the country, but yet they refuse to tap into this political base and embrace the message of the candidate that won overwhelmingly among millennials. Populism galvanizes millennials. They'll come out and vote everywhere if you give them a progressive populist choice. But the New York Times, with this article, they're trying to justify the Democratic Party's decision to run to the right to the point where modern-day Democrats don't even look like Democrats anymore. They look like Reagan Republicans, and the Republican Party, they just moved so far to the right that they're now bordering on proto-fascism. So, here's what the New York Times needs to understand. You cannot win without progressives, and you won't win without millennials, and by you reinforcing all of the Democratic Party's bad decisions, you are ensuring that a right-wing extremist party will remain in power. So if you truly care about the Democratic Party, then you should encourage them to move to the left and become more populist because that's what's working. I mean, think about some of these electoral victories that progressives have had across the country where they're winning in overwhelmingly Trumpian districts. If you are liberal and give them a real alternative, guess what? They're going to vote for you, but, I mean, they just want the Democratic Party to continue losing, and rest assured, they're going to continue losing if they continue to run to the right. And it's reading this article is just mind-boggling to me because it's just so stupid. They refuse to learn the lesson that they should have learned just now. Unless you're living under a rock, then by now you know about the monumental shakeup in UK politics where the British equivalent of Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, showed the world that progressives truly are the antidote to right-wing extremist ideologies that poison the brains of people who are the victims of neoliberal economic policies. Jeremy Corbyn showed us that if you actually are an unapologetic progressive, you can be successful and you can prove everyone wrong who doubted you. Now, Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed for the New York Times basically asking the Democratic Party to see the lesson that Jeremy Corbyn taught us. So he writes, in 2016, the Democratic Party lost the presidency to possibly the least popular candidate in American history. In recent years, Democrats have also lost the Senate and House to right-wing Republicans, whose extremist agenda is far removed from where most Americans are politically. Republicans now control almost two-thirds of the governor's offices and have gained about a thousand seats in state legislatures in the past nine years. In 
24 states, Democrats have almost no political influence at all. If these results are not a clear manifestation of a failed political strategy, I don't know what is. For the sake of our country and the world, the Democratic Party, in a very fundamental way, must change direction. It has got to open its doors wide to working people and young people. It must become less dependent on wealthy contributors, and it must make clear to the working families of this country that in these difficult times, it is prepared to stand up and fight for their rights. Without hesitation, it must take on powerful corporate interests that dominate the economic and political life of the country. There are lessons to be learned from the recent campaign in Britain. The conservatives there called the snap election with the full expectation that they would win in a landslide. They didn't. Against all predictions, they lost 13 seats in Parliament, while Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party won 32. There is never one reason elections are won or lost, but there is widespread agreement that momentum shifted to Labour after it released a very progressive manifesto that generated much enthusiasm among young people and workers. One of the most interesting aspects of the election was the soaring turnout among voters 34 or younger. The British elections should be a lesson for the Democratic Party. We already have among the lowest voter turnout of any major country on earth. Democrats will not win if the 2018 midterm election turnout resembles the unbelievably low 36.7% of eligible voters who cast ballots in 2014. The Democrats must develop an agenda that speaks to the pain of tens of millions of families who are working longer hours for lower wages and to the young people who, unless we turn the economy around, will have a lower standard of living than their parents. While Democrats should appeal to moderate Republicans who are disgusted with the Trump presidency, too many in our party cling to an overly cautious, centrist ideology. The party's main thrust must be to make politics relevant to those who have given up on democracy and bring millions of new voters into the political process. It must be prepared to take on the right-wing extremist ideology of the Koch brothers and the billionaire class and fight for an economy and a government that works for all, not just the 1%. This is a pivotal moment in American history. If the Democrats are prepared to rally grassroots America in every state and to stand up to the greed of the billionaire class, the party will stop losing elections and it will create the kind of country the American people want and deserve. So I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that Jeremy Corbyn's success proves that Bernie Sanders would have won because we are currently witnessing an anti-establishment wave, not just in the United States, but across the world. And also, another point in this article I wanted to bring up is that for a pretty good portion of the article, he gets into Donald Trump and his numerous policy failings and how he just doesn't represent the working class. And the point that I want to take away from that portion of the argument is that if Democrats focus less on Donald Trump's tweets and more on his policies, then they could be a lot more successful. But Democrats... They, they don't really have a truly alternative progressive vision to counter with, so all they do is focus on the controversies. And the same thing is true for Republicans. I mean, think about when Obama was in power. What did they scream about? Benghazi, 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 because Republican policies, they just aren't that popular, and they only win when Democratic voters stay home, because the part of the electorate that votes Republican, it's older voters mostly, uh, and they come out to vote in every single election. So, if turnout is high, Democrats win. If turnout is low, Republicans win. Win. It's a simple fact. So, I mean, now we're seeing kind of the same thing that Republicans did. Uh, we're seeing Russia, 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 when we saw Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi. And really, I mean, the American people are hurting. 
You have to focus on the policies. Donald Trump has given us more than enough to criticize him on. Uh, we can make, you know, hour-long segments on just specific things that he did. I mean, within the first week he was elected, he signed an executive order to expedite construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. I mean, why aren't they talking about that? There are so many things that we can criticize Trump for, but they choose to avoid the policy and focus on the controversy almost exclusively. And it's something that is not going to be conducive to a democratic sweep in 2018. But getting back to the British election, um, I'll just say this because I didn't make a video about this. Although if you followed me on Twitter, you know that I was going crazy uh, as I watched the results come in. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is an inspiration to progressives around the world, and he should be really proud of the prog progress that he made. I mean, look at someone like J.K. Rowling. She said that she doesn't like Jeremy Corbyn because he's really bringing down the Labour Party when he showed that actually Jeremy Corbyn is helping the Labour Party because the Labour Party was riddled with centrists. I mean, think about some of the prime ministers that they had. Gordon Brown, I mean, come on, Tony Blair... It's, it's the same thing that we really see. I mean, these centrist so-called leftists, and again, labor is much more further to the left than Democrats are, but I mean, you see them moving more to the center and to the right, and that doesn't excite anyone. You, you don't encourage younger voters to vote for you when they desperately need someone to represent them and there's this argument that well you know they don't they don't get any representation and congress doesn't care about them because they don't come out to vote right give them something to vote for and they will come out and uh, they'll vote for you they just will that's what we've seen with obama uh, even though he betrayed us but i mean you have to energize the base that's the lesson that jeremy corbyn taught us and you have to offer us policies that will actually improve our lives another lesson that jeremy corbyn taught us so if democrats want to win they should use the British election as an example and learn the lessons from it. You have to be progressive. You have to move to the left and be unapologetic in the progressive policies that you advocate for. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, the country has had to grapple with the idea that the president may have obstructed justice. Now, this is a debatable issue, and it's still controversial because, to me, I think it's very clear that he tried to obstruct justice, but Republicans at this point don't necessarily see it this way, and they're effectively arguing that he was too stupid to know that he was obstructing justice, because this is the go-to argument for elites. They had no idea that they were doing anything wrong, so uh, they're not guilty. Well, that's not really persuasive. The debate itself will continue, but the Trump-Russia investigation is now widening to include a look into whether or not Donald Trump did in fact make an effort to obstruct justice. So according to Vox, Robert Mueller is now probing whether President Trump attempted to obstruct justice. An investigation, they say, began just days after Trump fired FBI Director James Comey. Specifically, they write, five people briefed say that Mueller's team will soon interview Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats and National Security Agency Director Mike Rogers, along with Rogers' former deputy who recently left the government. A spokesperson for Trump's personal lawyer issued a statement that conspicuously did not deny the story, merely saying the FBI leak of information regarding the president is outrageous, inexcusable, and illegal. 
Now, there were people that were initially apprehensive to believe that the scope of the Trump-Russia investigation widened to determine whether or not he did, in fact, obstruct justice. But Donald Trump <laughs> put his foot in his mouth like he usually does, and he inadvertently admitted that this is, in fact, the case. So, President Donald Trump slammed special counsel Robert Mueller's expanding probe on Thursday, calling the inquiry into whether he obstructed justice a phony story and the single greatest witch hunt in American political history. So, he's inadvertently confirming it here that's exactly what he's doing um so to him whining and you know being a baby about this well maybe you shouldn't have run for president if you don't want to deal with the accountability that comes along with being president and you know most of all maybe you shouldn't have tried to obstruct justice because if you are an adult and you're incapable of realizing how asking the fbi director to drop something doesn't seem problematic and unethical then you have no business being in government. And we already know that Donald Trump is a man, baby, who doesn't have any business being in, in government. So uh, certainly I do believe that he probably did try to obstruct justice, but certainly we'll wait for the outcome of this investigation. And in the meantime, I, I do want to say this to my fellow liberals. Let's not get too bogged down by this because Donald Trump and the Republicans are currently pushing a really harmful agenda. If Trump care goes through, I mean, if the, the Senate actually passes the American Health Care Act, millions of people 24 million specifically will be thrown off of their health insurance and i don't even want to imagine how many people will die as a result of that so we have to focus on the real issues we need to focus on the policies and not just the controversies because when it comes to policies donald trump has given progressives and liberals more than enough to work with and criticize them on and, and hold them accountable but focusing on Trump, Russia, or the investigation, you know, and uh, Mike Flynn and the obstruction of justice, if you do that too much, that's not a winning argument. You have to actually come forward with a winning vision, and that vision is progressive. Tell the American people how Republicans are betraying the working class and how you are proposing a true progressive alternative. It's the way to go. So that's all I have to say about this. You know, let's let's not get bogged down by this. Let's not focus on this exclusively. Let's actually go after Trump where it matters, on the policies. And his policies, they've been pretty bad. Let's actually fight him on that and call him out on that and not allow all of these controversies to distract us while we don't even know what the outcome will be. President Donald Trump may have just broken his own record when it comes to flip-flopping, because if you know anything about politics, you know that Donald Trump has been on every side of every single political issue <laughs> over the course of his career, uh, and he's just a brazen flip-flopper. He's a hypocrite. However, he is going to even greater lengths recently to expose himself as a gigantic flip-flopping hypocrite because in an article published in cbs news titled trump sells qatar 12 billion of u.s weapons days after accusing it of funding terrorism well i mean <laughs> the title the title itself says everything you need to know the joke writes itself i mean how big of a hypocrite do you have to be to flip-flop on an issue in just days come on because clearly if, if you think a regime is funding terrorism then clearly it's not in your interest to reward them by giving them a weapons deal. But, I mean, a $12 billion weapons deal, that's substantial. So if you think they're funding terrorism, why would you give them this weapons deal? I mean, that makes you a hypocrite. So clearly, you're not too concerned about them funding terrorism if it is the case that you're going to be giving them this weapons deal, right? Because you're rewarding bad behavior. But again, it's Donald Trump. He's a hypocrite. He's a flip-flopper. 
His opinion on something may change faster than the weather. So the article reads, while President Trump berates Qatar for sponsoring terrorism at the highest levels, he is simultaneously authorizing the country to purchase over 21 billion of U.S. weapons. One portion of that deal, 12 billion for 36 F-15QA fighter jets, was inked on Wednesday in Washington, D.C. when Qatar's defense minister met with the U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis. We are pleased to announce today the signing of the letter of offer and acceptance for the purchase of F-15 QA fighter jets with an initial cost of $12 billion, read the Qatari defense minister's statement on Wednesday afternoon. We believe that this agreement will propel Qatar's ability to provide for its own security while also reducing the burden placed upon the United States military in conducting operations against violent extremism. Now, to be extra fair to Donald Trump here, this was, in fact, a deal that was authorized and approved by Congress. However, as the new commander-in-chief, Donald Trump has the authority to withdraw from this deal and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to reward Qatar after they're funding terrorism, but he chose not to do that. So after accusing them of funding terrorism and sponsoring terrorism, he gives them this $12 billion weapons deal. It's a gift to them. So it, it just makes no sense. And I wanted to talk about this story because it's one of the many examples Trump has given us to show that he's just a complete hypocrite. He talks about how he was against the Iraq war. Wrong. Are you for invading Iraq? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, I wish it was. I, I wish the first time it was done correctly. He talks about how he was against Libyan intervention when we know that that's not true because he recorded a video in his office saying how, you know, it, Gaddafi is the bad guy. We need to go in there and take him out. I mean, he's just been on every side of every single issue. And he's shameless about it. We should go in. We should stop this guy, which would be very easy and very quick. We could do it surgically. Stop him from doing it and save these lives. This is absolute nuts. We don't want to get involved. And you're going to end up with something like you've never seen before. Now, ultimately, the people will appreciate it. They're going to end up taking over the country eventually. But the people will appreciate it. And they should pay us back. But we have to go in to save these lives. These people are being slaughtered like animals. It's horrible what's going on. It has to be stopped. We're making decisions like trade embargoes. What does this have to do with a trade embargo? He's killing people with machine guns in the streets. We should do on a humanitarian basis, immediately go into Libya, knock this guy out very quickly, very surgically, very effectively, and save the lives. After it's all done, we go to the protesters who end up running the country. They're going to like us a lot better than they will if we don't do it. More importantly, we're going to save lives. And we should then say, by the way, from all of your oil, we want reimbursement. Wrong. In an age where the internet exists and you say something that will be out there forever, how could you not be more mindful of this fact? I mean, it, it's just, it, it's, it's so absurd to me. And I'm embarrassed for him. Like, it makes me cringe in a way because, you know, t if I said something and contradicted myself that quickly, I would be pretty embarrassed about it. And I would have to figure out a way to justify my change of reasoning that abruptly to my viewers or anyone. Because I'm a normal person. I'm a rational human being. Trump is not rational. He makes snap decisions. He is a hasty decision maker, just generally speaking. And he's impulsive. So, you know... What is his opinion one day may change uh, the next day. So <laughs> this isn't a surprising story, but I, I just couldn't not point it out because Donald Trump is just, man, what a hypocrite. Congratulations, you played yourself.
Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of the episode. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for watching. And I want to thank everyone who is a supporter of The Humanist Report on both Patreon and PayPal. Next week, we are approaching another very large milestone. 100 episodes. I was going to say subscribers. 100 episodes. Um, and I haven't really thought of anything special to do for that. So um, if you have any suggestions, then please let me know down below. I'm thinking maybe a Q&A or something like that. Um, you know, so something just quick. Um, not like a long live one, just kind of where I take some of your questions or just a celebration. I, I don't know what it's going to be. So if you have ideas or if you'd be interested in that, then let me know. If not, I'll probably just do an episode, you know, as usual uh, and not do anything too special. So anyways, um, thank you all for watching. I want to, um, once again, send a thank you to the people who support the show on pay on PayPal and Patreon. You guys are lifesavers. You're amazing. So thank you all so much. I'll see you next week. <laughs>